Hey guys, it's On Education. I'm Dan Martin, your humble host, and today we are going to be talking about actual ideas that you can bring into your classroom to help increase the critical thinking skills of your students. In the last uh, podcast, we talked about critical thinking theory more, and we uh, described uh, the process of critical thinking, the traits of a critical thinker, the stages of developing critical thinking. Uh, and we, we um, presented some ideas on how to incorporate this into the classroom. But this podcast is going to be more of a practical one where I'm going to present some actual ideas on activities and things that you can do in your classroom to increase this important skill. Before we do this, let's uh, take a, a little bit of a step back and review what we talked about in the last podcast. In the last podcast, we uh, presented some ideas by Dr. Paul, and he is a uh, Critical Thinking Skills um, Institute member of the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. And he has written uh, extensively about this subject. Um, he's written several articles and books about critical thinking. And this was a, um, a interview uh, for a quarterly newsletter of Lifelong Learning Net Network in uh, fall of 1998. And so how does he define critical thinking? So Dr. Paul says, critical thinking occurs as people recognize that thinking itself does not necessarily gravitate toward high quality. So just because you have thoughts about a topic doesn't mean that they're necessarily uh, well-informed or well-researched. Rather, it often gravitates towards low quality. So when critical thinking is a systematic attempt to think about thinking in such a way as to take it apart and recognize how it's functioning uh, evaluate it for its strengths and weaknesses and restructure it to make it better. In other words, it's thinking about thinking while thinking in order to make thinking better, thinking, improving thinking. Okay. So uh, that could be a tongue twister, I'm sure, but you have to be reflective and be thoughtful about how you're developing your opinions and thoughts. And so uh, that's one of the things that Dr. Paul thought was super important. Okay. So uh, he goes into a lot more detail later on in the uh, in the article about the stages of critical thinking, but he said that the traits of the essential traits of a critical thinker are this. He says a person with intellectual humility would know what they know and know what they don't know. I used to tell my students that all the time. You got to know what you know and know what you don't know. You know, and that would confuse them, and I would have to explain to them that it's important to really uh, go in depth and really know something, but to also recognize there's so much more to be learned. And so you've got to know what you know and realize you've got a lot less, a lot, a lot of things left to learn. And he said uh, that, that the thinker is able to fill in gaps of ignorance with knowledge rather than confuse a belief, however passionate it might be with knowledge. All right, so that's a, that's an important trait to have. Another trait of a good critical thinker would be intellectual perseverance, ability to work through difficulties in thinking in order to solve problems that have some inherent complexity in them. And this stick to and this willingness to, to uh, hang in there uh, through multiple setbacks. And uh, 
we'll talk more about that <clears throat> in the following uh, uh, months and during our discussions of how to uh, motivate students. This was an idea presented by Debbie Guerrera, um, and it was also in the same quarterly newsletter uh, back in 1998. Uh, it's called Wordsworth. And uh, so she presented a concrete idea, uh, a list of activities to help students develop their critical uh, thinking skills. And it was interesting to note here that I think you could use this in multiple different subject areas, no matter what you teach. And so she said, um, you know, uh, get a topic that is uh, maybe has two sides to it or multiple sides to it in your in your particular area and then show students how to access data from different databases or publications and then um, have students gather the data you know actually do the research and gather the data and as they're gathering it encourage them to organize the data by points of view or other meaningful classifications uh, then show all uh, show all the students different model types of comparison charts and so you're going to take this data that you've gathered and put it into charts uh, to help you uh, evaluate and compare the data uh, and then have students make their own charts out of the data that they have found okay so collecting the data putting it in these comparison charts and then she says have students cut and paste charts into a document or powerpoint slides and write summaries and evaluate the validity of the arguments all right so uh, just a, a way of organizing and then evaluating uh, this last step evaluate the uh, validity of arguments this is where that higher order thinking skills come into view uh, and so let's see uh, what else she has here as her guidelines for the activity. Okay, so she says here uh, that you need to help the students ask the right questions. Uh, teachers uh, should, uh, and this is one of the things with this higher order is that uh, the students might not know necessarily what questions to ask, and so you'll have to model it. And I would, I would model it with a separate activity or a separate set of data. Uh, and uh, not use the data that the students have gathered uh, to model it because they'll just come up with the same thing that you do. So you should uh, use a different set of data and a, com a comparison chart and look at that and critically evaluate the data and so the students will get the right kind of ideas about what questions to ask. And she said, uh, you should emphasize the process of having students reflect on their thinking. All right, uh, I believe that the earth is round. <laughs> All right, and so how did you come up with that assumption? Did you just always know it to be true? Uh, did you uh, have other scientists do experiments or take pictures or gather data to support that point of view? Uh, so um, you need to, uh, come up with uh, a way of critically looking. Maybe somebody makes a claim, for example, uh, maybe they're working for a particular company that produces a product and they're making the claim that the product in, helps improve uh, your quality of life. Well, looking critically at that data, 
the data seems to support that, but the person has a particular point of view that they want to support because they're employed by the company. So things like that. Uh, identify issues and conclusions, okay. Uh, quality of the evidence, okay. So looking at, is this come from a double-blind study? Does it come from a uh, peer-reviewed journal? Identify assumptions. Uh, maybe there are things that the uh, product or the point of view is assuming. Assuming that you are a, uh, a person within a certain um, age group. Uh, will this product help them? Are you assuming that it will help people that are older or younger? Uh, what kind of data did they gather? What kind of experiments did they use? Uh, and what assumptions did they make? Identify ambiguous words like maybe <laughs> is supposed to, uh, uh, maybe uh, words that aren't quite as backed by uh, a, a study or a set of data. Uh, maybe they're just opinions. Uh, identify the conclusions that the author made and look at those uh, critically as well. Okay, so now let's look at uh, some additional comments that she makes. She said, all these concerns help students dis discern between uninformed opinion and evaluation that requires them to separate uh, analysis, texts, and experience and synthesize their exploration based on these questions. This way they become true critics that use judge that uses judgment is grounded on thoughtful processes. Okay, so here uh, she's just uh, re-emphasizing this whole thing of, of thinking about your point of view, uh, looking at the data critically, looking at the points of view of the people that are presenting the data, uh, evaluating the strength of the data, uh, based upon, uh, is it based upon uh, good scientific studies or is it just opinion? Uh, are there any ambiguities in the data that they can identify? And so this is a, um, a cool way of uh, looking at issues. I could see where uh, you could do this uh, with different presentations of different historical events. Um, and uh, the synthesis of those, you know, looking at causes and effects and uh, looking at people's opinions about why certain things happened and was it based on actual data or just opinion. Uh, in the sciences, you could look at different environmental studies and determine uh, whether uh, you think that the, uh, that the concerns uh, of people are based on opinion or, or actual factual evidence uh, and so forth. So there's a lot of different uh, cool things that you can do with this uh, database type of approach and chart-based approach of comparison charts. And so I think this would be a really cool activity for you to do in your classroom. All right, so here's some other things that uh, we brought up in the last podcast that I think might be useful when you're doing these um, comparisons of data. Um, so uh, this comes from Dr. Paul again, and he has these eight critical stru structures and questions. Let's just go through the critical structures uh, and, 
you can refer back to the last um, uh, podcast to uh, talk about the questions. Um, so the critical structures uh, in thinking about uh, uh, looking at research or looking at opinion is what is the purpose or goal? Uh, now this is something that you could ask of yourself. You know, why are you uh, looking at this? Why are you looking for? But also identify the purpose or goal of the people presenting the data. And sometimes uh, that might uncover some bias uh, that you need to be aware of. Um, not all uh, people doing research uh, that are funded by public companies, uh, you know, are biased necessarily or presenting biased data. Uh, but it's a good thing to keep in mind when you're looking at their at their uh, assumptions and conclusions. Uh, what are the questions? What are the questions that you need to be asking of the data? You know, how many how many people were involved in the research study, or uh, how many years uh, of research were conducted, uh, those types of things. Um, data, facts, and experience, okay? So uh, looking at multiple uh, data points, uh, looking at the facts that are presented uh, and the different experiences of those maybe um, uh, uh, gathering the data. Uh, not all of it can be put into uh, a nice, neat, experimental experimental uh, formula. Some of it's just the experience of people uh, uh, in that period of time, uh, especially historical events. And you can look at the experience of people uh, from multiple points of view. Interpret data and facts, okay? So just look critically at the data and the facts involved. Uh, substantiate claims you know if just one person saw it or one person experienced it uh, that has less value than if multiple multiple people experienced it or saw an event happen what concepts or ideas can be applied um, sometimes uh, these would be scientific concepts but they might also be uh, sociological type of concepts uh, and uh, so uh, look at the concepts or ideas that are presented there. What assumptions are being made? Uh, again, uh, sometimes you can make inferences on things and uh, maybe uh, they don't apply to different situations or different groups of, of people. Uh, what are the implications and consequences of our assumptions? Uh, what if you're wrong? <laughs> You know, what if this event did not occur the way it occurred? Uh, and think beyond just the uh, data that's being presented and try to speculate out, you know, what consequences this event will have over time. Uh, and some of that's highly speculative, but it's uh, important to look at. Uh, whether you think, you think within a point of view. So always take your own point of view um, and recognize that you have one and try not to let that bias your opinion about the facts that are being presented. So some really cool things there. I think some things that can help students think on higher levels and, and go beyond uh, just uh, memorization of dates and facts and 
relationships and and try to go beyond or get to that higher level of of blooms where they actually uh, apply knowledge to different situations and also create new schema uh, in terms of of things that can be accomplished all right so this is an interesting uh interesting study that I ran across. Uh, it says student choice and higher order thinking using a novel flexible assignment regime combined with critical thinking activities to encourage the development of higher order thinking. All right, and this is uh, comes from the International Journal of Teaching and Learning in Higher Education. Uh, and so uh, what these researchers did, uh, and I think it was in an accounting uh, class, uh, and um, what they did was they had two groups of students and uh, they uh, grouped them by uh, whether they decided to uh, do additional uh, type of, of research and study, uh, maybe on a little bit higher thinking plane uh, along with their regular assignments. And so, uh, the other student, you, they were given a choice whether they wanted to include these uh, additional activities and they had a grading scale that uh, would accommodate that and split the grades up uh, into uh, four different categories instead of just uh, two categories. And so the, the regular instruction and the regular uh, process of developing, a, uh, it was an accounting project or uh, they had a uh, the the regular uh, assignment and the regular uh, project that they had to produce, you know, with exams, and then they were also given some higher order thinking activities along with that. And so uh, they they divided the grades up, uh, you know, by whatever the student chose, and then they surveyed the students at the end, and then they looked at their students' performance, uh, and so. That's the general idea of this study. Uh, so they said the data showed that students came to value the flexible assignment regime by the end of the semester. Uh, that's from the surveys. Uh, these discussions indicated that students thought that the assignment options allowed them to scaffold their learning throughout the semester, reduce overall, uh, reduce overall student stress, and encourage the development of higher order thinking skills. Um, and so they they feel like students uh, uh, would take a proactive uh, that take a proactive role in their learning uh, with combined with activities designed to develop critical thinking. These assessment strategies can be effective in developing higher order thinking skills. So uh, those are the conclusions of the study. Uh, and then. He's, they say by offering students some of the choice, they became active participants in the assignment process, taking responsibility for their own learning, allowing students a degree of flexibility also appears to positively impact, uh, have positive impact on their attitude and motivation towards the task. Flexibility in assignments has also been suggested to reduce student stress. And of course, they, they're uh, listing some studies here. Uh, to substantiate or to uh, provide additional evidence uh, for their claims. Okay, so to uh, get into a little bit more detail about the exact um, uh, pedagogy, I guess you would say, of the study or how they actually conducted the study, 
uh, they said the assigned tasks in the unit were divided into product focus and process focus activities. The product focus tasks were compulsory for all students and allowed them to demonstrate the final product of their learning. The process focus assignment tasks were voluntary and designed to foster higher order thinking skills as well as to assist students in their learning throughout the semester. Students could therefore choose whether or not to invest extra time and resources to complete these voluntary tasks. Uh, so they basically had two groups of students, uh, one that just had the regular instruction and ones that had the regular instructions plus these higher order thinking tasks that they incorporated into uh, the lessons. So uh, this uh, uh, particular uh, study, they found that 67% of the students opted for all four assignments and 60% and exams and 40% assignment grading scheme. 33% opted for two uh, values, 80% exam and 20% compulsory uh, assignments. I guess those were the two choices. The effect of fle flexible assessment regime on student grades, the average grade for the student who completed all four assessments uh, on all four assessments was 63.4%, and they had a, a, that was 594 students. Students who completed only the two compulsory tasks had an average of 51.4%, and that uh, there were only 281 students that uh, that completed those tasks. This represents a 12% difference in mark between choice one and choice two. Okay, so let's think critically about this data. Uh, and I guess the, the number one thing that I thought, well, if, if you do more work, <laughs> you're going to learn the material better. And so, and also probably the degree of investment of the students in the act in the course uh, would indicate students who are more invested and, and want to learn more would do more work. Um, and it's just not, maybe it's just not the, the process of, uh, of choosing uh, the higher order thinking skills or uh, being more involved in the educational process of choosing what you do. Um, you know, I think that's a very powerful thing. In, the, in, the, in fact, in the following podcast, we're going to talk about student motivation and intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And uh, there's been a lot of work done on that. And uh, the basic uh, conclusion is that the more intrinsic uh, the motivation, uh, the, uh, the uh, wanting to improve yourself for improvement's sake, or another way of looking at it is truly enjoying the process of learning something, something that really interests you and, and that you have invested in and had some choice over, usually turns out to be a lot better than just extrinsic uh, rewards like, uh, for example, grades or, or maybe uh, keys money. In Kentucky, we have what we call keys money. Students make uh, get money uh, for their higher education by making A's and B's. Uh, I've even had parents bribe their kids with saying, if you get an A, you get 100 bucks, a B, you know, 80 bucks, a C, uh, 60 bucks or something like that. And so that, that those would be um, examples of extrinsic motivation. But intrinsic motivated students tend to enjoy learning for learning's sake. And they realize this learning is improving the quality of their life. And so uh, we'll get into that more in the following podcast. But 
I thought that this was an interesting approach and one that they back up with not only their study, but, excuse me, other studies as well show that when students have choice, uh, they tend to do better. And I think this one is uh, kind of an interesting thing, and, and there's probably multiple reasons why the students did so much better uh, with the uh, uh, additional assignments. Okay, so how did the students uh, feel about the uh, the the choice given and the assignments. Uh, it was reported in a survey that 56% of the students did not feel like their overall approach to studying changed as a result of the flexible assignment scheme. Approximately half of the students, 52.5% versus 47.8%, felt that their final grade represented their understanding of the unit. Only 23% of the students felt like the flexible system negatively uh, affected their grade. And at the end of the assignment, 67% either reported the flexible scheme as either good or very good. So, uh, you know, kind of a mixed bag of results there, but that last statement that we made, at the end of the assignment, 67% either reported the flexible scheme as either good or very good. And uh, I think, if I re recall correctly, uh, that that was only with the students that chose the flexible assignments. And, and so uh, you still have a pretty substantial number of students there, 33% or so, uh, that did the uh, additional assignments that didn't feel like that it went very well for them. And, and maybe they were just overwhelmed by the extra work. I don't know. I'd be interested to see why uh, that they felt like it was not a good thing. One of the things I also thought about this study was that uh, that the uh, additional assignments probably kept the students more engaged throughout the process and less distracted. I, I don't know if you uh, have experienced the same thing, but thinking back to my college days, the times that I did the best was the times that I was super busy. You know, I was working out on the farm. Uh, I had a full load of classes. Uh, I was delivering newspapers in the dorms. And so I had to focus and get every last, uh, uh, the life out of every minute that I lived. You know, I had to really, really uh, budget my time well. And I did a lot better than the times that maybe I was only taking 12 hours and maybe only working a little bit here and there. I had a lot more time to kill and a lot more time to waste. And so I think that this uh, extra uh, regime probably helped the students, um, you know, think uh, of the activities at a higher level and then also helped them keep uh, a lot busier as well. Okay, so an another technique that you can use in your classroom to help develop the higher order thinking skills of your student is something called neuro-linguistic programming. And so, uh, sometimes they call this the uh, Disney approach. And I, I think that this is a very concrete thing that you could do uh, in designing your lessons and helping students develop these higher order thinking skills. And this comes from a study out of uh, SANS Malaysia. It's called Effective, Effectiveness, <laughs> excuse me, Effectiveness of the Disney NLP based strategy to improve student higher order thinking skills. And so, uh, the researchers use an impact group technique to determine the sample and divide the participants into two groups, namely the control group using conventional models 
and the experimental group using Disney's NLP-based strategy. Instrument used are Disney's NLP strategy and a higher order thinking skills test. The instrument used to obtain the HOTS or the higher order thinking skills data was a subjective test in which the indicators were based on Bloom's revised taxonomy. So they had some scaffolding of their other questions and what they were looking for was the effectiveness in uh, the the teaching techniques on improving these higher order thinking skills. And so the results from the data analysis represented the effectiveness of Disney's NLP based strategy and application of the students' higher order thinking skills. The findings of the study have shown that Disney's approach can be used as a means to facilitate uh, college lectures in matriculation and nurturing competent students okay so uh, they they concluded that uh, the comparison between the two groups uh, the ones that use this neuro linguistic programming uh, did uh, uh, completed the tasks that were assigned and uh, made better scores on their tests so let's look at some of the particulars here and let's talk about what uh, this uh, strategy entails Okay, so the Disney's NLP strategy provides a mechanism to guide one's brain systematically. It teaches people not only to control their state and behavior, but as well as others. And so they, they list the study that they got this from. It's a Brander 1985. And I'll provide the, the links uh, down below so you can uh, actually go and look at, in more depth at this research if you want to. In brief, it is a science of brain operation that ideally produces desired results from, through verbal or nonverbal communication with oneself. John Greider and Richard uh, Brander founded NLP. They are respectively a professor and a psychologist at the University of California, Santa, Barbara, uh, Santa Cruz. Excuse me. They initially conducted a study on the factors that enable individuals to excel and replicate the excellence at, at desired levels. They uh, observe people who are exhibiting their behavior patterns and thinking styles. Uh, and so Brander and Greider identified and validated and established a technique. So they're attributing uh, the, the, uh, the folks who actually came up with this Disney NLP uh, model. Okay, so the, the Disney model here uh, is a sophisticated form of thought in which Disney often used three separate modes of thinking. So the first phase is called the creative phase. Okay, so in this creative phase, uh, this inclu in, uh, includes incorporating creative thinking to create new solutions and alternatives. I, I think this is kind of like the brainstorming phase. Uh, you throw out ideas and possible solutions and you're really not worried about the scientific principles or or uh, you're not worried about silly ideas uh, you're really brainstorming and coming up with uh, just being creative in the way that you approach it you don't really think about the practicality of these ideas but you're you're just trying to get lots of ideas down and do it in a creative way um, so it says here the creative phase is the process of generating ideas in this step there are no right or wrong principles 
but ideas should be produced as much as possible because they will be revised in the following processes. And so you don't really worry uh, about uh, anything except coming up with lots of ideas and lots of solutions to problems. So in, in this phase, also your, your mindset is super important. You have to feel really comfortable and psychologically safe to come up with ideas. And so people should refrain from saying, oh, that's a stupid idea or that's so silly or uh, you're nuts or something like that. Uh, so you, you need to feel uh, comfortable and supported in coming up with even crazy ideas. It says uh, psychology contributes as much as 55% to help minds take action, according to Reddy and Burton. Okay, This process that proper psychology will grant the mind peace and help to generate appropriate ideas for problem solving. So there's a whole uh, schema and a whole uh, mindset uh, that's involved with this first stage. Okay, so let's look at the second stage, which is called the realistic phase. And students here were required to visualize the realistic past success. So they were asked to kind of go back and look at what they were able to accomplish before and if they could accomplish the task based on their current situation. In this phase, execution procedures and means are critical as the ideas acquired during the creative phase are in rough, are in rough and vague. They will be further developed to be more practical and compatible uh, with the current situation. In this phase, the ideas generate will be carried out while the steps are being evaluated for zero mistake effort. Disney will have uh, animated characters to ensure the effective implementation of the ideas. In NLP, it is called the technique of the first perpetual position, which illustrates the decline in the desired situation as it occurs before the eyes. And so, uh, you know, as you're going through different scenarios and, and different ways of approaching the problem and solving the problem, you really look at each individual part and see how it either adds to the solution or subtracts from it. And so this is a very uh, uh, critical phase and they call this the first perpetual position. Okay, so let's go on and look at the last phase. Okay, so the final phase, an assessment on ideas will be con conducted and they call this uh, the second perpetual position in this NLP technique. And it's to determine the strengths or limitations of a concept or model. Hence, this approach is believed to be helpful. There's always room for improving uh, improvement, permitting these phases to be reproduced to perfection, starting with the creative phase. Uh, criticism applies exclusively to ideas of preparation, but not process. And so um, I think here uh, it's a, just a matter of, uh, of going through and looking at maybe uh, the, uh, the effectiveness of each solution and going through it again and again to see if it's the best possible avenue uh, to solve the problem. So I think this is a, uh, excuse me, uh, a technique that you can use in your classroom and uh, I think, you know, the whole process of, of brainstorming, of looking at possible solutions critically, bit by bit by bit, and then in the final uh, analysis, 
maybe comparing two, um, two or more possible solutions uh, for their effectiveness, their creativity, their uh, their uh, total value. So I think that this would be uh, an extremely interesting approach for students to use uh, in the classroom and, and be uh, an effective way to develop those critical thinking skills. Um, and uh, uh, certainly, uh, you know, it comes to mind what Einstein said that what's more important he, he said, what's more important, creativity or knowledge? <laughs> and he said, uh, creativity is more important because you can always acquire more knowledge, but it's not always uh, uh, easy to think of things in a creative way. And so, you know, Walt Disney, the king of creativity, uh, certainly came up with an interesting approach here. Okay, so uh, I was realizing that the uh, podcast was going a little long, and so uh, I... I'm going to summarize uh, some of the uh, some of the data that was presented uh, in this study, and, and basically uh, they did t-test evaluation of their uh, exams, and they looked at different factors within the exams, uh, and they concluded uh, from this that there was a, su a substantial or significant difference between the students who used the Disney approach and the more traditional learning um, presentations and so uh, the the data presented looked really really good and looked like that they had a substantial number of students involved and their sampling techniques and their t-test evaluations were valid so i think that this approach is a, a worthwhile approach to develop higher order thinking skills in your students um, but uh, i i think uh, that in, in conclusion here, one has to be intentional, uh, but very selective in planning these types of activities because they're very time consuming. Um, and so uh, I think that, that these things would be good uh, if you selected certain lessons that you really need to have students nail down certain concepts or ideas, or um, uh, maybe uh, if you're teaching English or if you're teaching history, uh, you might be very selective on on doing too much of this might uh, deter from you getting through the material. And so <laughs> we'll talk about curriculum and we'll talk about getting through the material and that sort of thing. Um, we'll also talk about intrinsic, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation of students and uh, ways that you can uh, actually develop this higher order thinking and encourage intrinsic uh, uh, motivation, you know, that that motivation where students really enjoy learning and the learning itself is is more important than extrinsic things like grades. And but I think you have to be careful about this uh, higher order thinking skill stuff. Um, but I also think that you can, within all your lessons, incorporate a certain degree of higher order questions in each one of your lessons, even though you're not doing an activity uh, like the ones that were presented here. Uh, this culture of higher order thinking should be incorporated early, uh, you know, asking uh, students in the elementary school uh, to express their ideas and look critically at the things that they believe. I think that that can be done uh, very early on. Uh, development of lessons should be developmentally appropriate 
for the students involved. And so uh, you need to look at what they can handle and gradually uh, scaffold activities and questioning uh, to meet the needs of your students. And so um, as we go forward, you know, we're going to talk about motivation a lot and this intrinsic and extrinsic uh, motivation. And uh, I think that that's key. Uh, you know, you, you got to have some motivation. Uh, you've got to have students that that want to um, dig deep and find solutions to problems and uh, have those uh, qualities of a good critical thinker. Uh, you know, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know and also having that uh, desire to fill in the gaps with, uh, with good sound information and uh, have students look at, critically at the information that they're receiving to evaluate it. Also that level of persistence that we talked about uh, and perseverance and not giving up and enjoying the process of tackling difficult assignments. So we'll talk all about that stuff as we go along. I hope you find these um, these podcasts to be uh, interesting and motivating, and hopefully uh, uh, you can uh, mine some sort of activity or idea that you can use in your classroom. Uh, so thanks for your attention, and looking forward to seeing you the next time. Mm-hmm.